Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. Well, thank you so much, Brother David. I'm always impressed when a pastor invites me to preach because I know that he guards his pulpit very carefully. And he's careful who preaches there. So I count it a great privilege. And I'm really excited when he leaves town. That means he really trusts me. But I did get a text from him last night. I said he'd be watching. So uh, I guess we'll have him here anyway. Good to see you guys. Good to be back in uh, West Texas, back in Lubbock. Been here many times and uh, grateful for the opportunity to preach to you. Now, I want you to open your Bible with me to... uh, uh, John chapter 7, John chapter 7, we're going to read verses 37 to 39, and I want to tell you, this this is one of the most exciting settings in the entire New Testament. Now, stay with me. John chapter 7, and beginning at verse 37, on the last and most important day of the festival... Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, I know what you're thinking. That didn't sound very exciting. I thought that too. I had this passage open on my desk for 18 months because I knew that there was something there that I was missing. Several clues. It starts off by saying Jesus stood up and cried out. Now, those two descriptive terms are very important. Number one, Jewish rabbis never stood up to speak. They always sat down. You remember the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 6. Remember how it began? And when he had sat down, then he preached the Sermon on the Mount. That's the way they always did it. I've seen the Western Wall with Jewish rabbis teaching their their students there at the Western Wall on the night of the beginning of the Sabbath. And every little rabbi has a little bit, a little stool he sits on. There's a table. Uh, that's covered uh, with proper cloth and uh, of, uh, then a copy of a scroll or a Bible, and, and he sits down and he teaches his students. Jewish rabbis never stood up. The only people that ever stood up in public back in New Testament days were those who were making a royal proclamation, like uh, something from Caesar or from the governor. And, of course, we know now Jesus was making a royal proclamation, wasn't he? He was making a proclamation from God. This is really big stuff that we're seeing here. So when I saw he stood up, I knew that it was more exciting than I saw. And then the word cried out. That word cried out is also a unique word. It only appears in the Gospel of John. And it only appears four times. It appears here in the seventh chapter, verse uh, 28 and in verse 37. And then it appears in the first chapter when it describes John the Baptist crying in the wilderness now, this is a, a strong word. It doesn't speak of nice, gentle, uh, melodious, put-you-to-sleep voice. No, that's a shout. It's something very exciting, very electric. And then in the 11th chapter of John, when Jesus called Lazarus out of the ground, called him back to life, it said he cried out 
Lazarus, come forth. I mean, this is a, is a very important, energetic, passionate, enthusiastic word cried out. So uh, I looked at that passage and I saw stood and cried out and I thought, I, I'm missing something. And then I remembered something that I have to share with you. You never read the Bible without considering the context of the Scripture. Oh, now that's going to tell us something. Well, how did this passage start? On the, on the last and most important day of the festival. Okay, so now we're in a Jewish festival. Well, what festival is it? Well, back in, uh, in verse 2 of this chapter, it tells us that it is, the, uh, it is the Feast of Tabernacles. So, all right, we are in the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. What on earth was that? I mean, we don't know anything about from practice. We don't practice the Feast of Tabernacles, don't know much about it. And, and actually, it's very difficult to find out much about it. Not a lot written about it. Well, let me just read you how it was started back in, in Leviticus chapter 23. Uh, he's talking about this feast. Sometimes it's called the Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes the Feast of Shelters, sometimes the Feast of Booths, and occasionally in the Old Testament, it's just called the Feast. <laughs> and so it's just, it's just the Feast. Well, he, gets, he introduces this early in this chapter in, in verse 33 of, of Leviticus 23. He introduces the Feast of Tabernacles, and then starting in verse uh, 39, he says, you are to celebrate the Lord's festival, Feast of Tabernacles, on the 15th day of the seventh month for seven days after you've gathered the produce of the land. So it's a time after harvest. So it's actually a Feast of Thanksgiving. They're thanking God for the rain that has allowed the crops to grow and be harvested. And then they're also an act, it's also an acted out prayer for more rain because there's be a, they need later rains for the later harvest. So it's a time of celebration, a time of, of, of supplication. And says you're to do this uh, to the Lord seven days each year. And this is a permanent statue, he says. And here's what you're to do. You are to live in shelters or booths for seven days. All the native born of Israel must live in shelters or booths so that your generation may know that I made the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So here's the picture. The Feast of Tabernacles is a time when the people move out of their homes and build booths, shelters. Now, this is West Texas. I came from East Texas. Now, I don't know what you call them out here. It could be a a shelter like when you feed cattle or something. We called them lean-tos back in East Texas, just lean-tos. I mean, it's just four poles, and you put a little roof over it. You might have some shelter from the wind around the side. It's just a temporary shelter. It's not anything, not a big deal. It's not fancy. And uh, the, the, the Pharisees said that the, uh, the, in this same passage, he talks about the kind of branches and, and leaves, uh, uh, the branches of trees and branches of trees and palm trees and so on that you're to bring, and you're to bring that, and you're to rejoice before the Lord for seven days. Now, Josephus says, the Jewish historian, this is the holiest and highest festival of the Jews. In other words, this was their favorite. Now, we all have favorites. And uh, I guess Christmas is still my favorite. There's a little boy inside me that just won't go away. And I love Christmas, and it's a great time of the year. But th this was the Jews' favorite, favorite festival. And, and here's, here's what they would do. They would move out 
of their homes and they would build a, a booth, a shelter, and they would take the, le- the Pharisees believed that the instructions out of Leviticus 23 to bring certain kinds of branches were what you would put on the roof of the, of the little booth and on the sides and you'd leave it with enough space so the wind could blow through and sun and moon could be seen and, and, uh, and so it would be the specifics on how it would be done and they were to bring these branches and they were to celebrate for seven days and the truth is some historians say the people wouldn't even sleep for a week. I mean, it was a festive thing. If you rolled up Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, 4th of July, all into one big holiday, that would be the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. I mean, it, it was something for everybody. It, there, a lot of changes were made. In the temple, there was a separate place for the women from the men. Women couldn't come into the main part of the temple. There was a court of the women. But during the, during the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, they would build a, a, a grandstand that was behind and looked down into the temple, kind of like this balcony here, and the women would sit there and they could look down in and see what was taking place down in the temple area. They would also have a lot of special effects. Jerry would love this. They'd have, they'd have trumpeters positioned around the perimeter of the, uh, of the uh, temple, and they would, at certain times they would blast triumphantly, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, like sometimes when Red Raiders are trying to get going, you do this, you know, the Long Ranger thing, get them going, charge, you know. They, they had this kind of thing going on. It was, it was, they built 50-foot uh, t- towers and had a pot of oil and a lamp on top of those uh, that were all around the perimeter of the temple and they kept them lighted for the whole eight days. Seven days the Old Testament had. The eighth day was a solemn assembly. So by New Testament times it was an eight day ceremony. That's the day now. That solemn assembly, that last day is the day of this, uh, of this uh, statement that we read in verses 37 to 39. And so and there were games for the kids. I mean, I, I, I could just, I, there's no way I could exact, it was a carnival-like atmosphere. Enthusiasm, noise, cheering, everything. A lot of things went on. But let me tell you about one ceremony. Every day, a white-robed priest would take a golden pitcher, and he would leave the temple area followed by a procession of priests. They would come out through the water gate and they would, as they came, they would, they would, the people were on each side of the walkway where they traveled with their branches and all the way from the temple to the gate, all the way down to the pool of Siloam. And they would come through the water gate down to the pool of Siloam, dip down and fill the pitcher, a golden pitcher with water. And then they would come back up to the water gate. And when they came to the water gate, they would quote Isaiah 12, 3, with joy shall you drink water from the wells of salvation. And then they would sing the Hallel. Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And when they got to the phrases in those those psalms that talked about the goodness of God and the love of God and his faithfulness, the people would raise those branches and they would shake them and they would cheer and shout. Uh, It was incredible, exciting. It'd make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. I mean, it was a big deal. And they would get up to the temple area, march one time around the altar. Then the priest would come to a silver funnel that had been erected over the altar. He would pour the water in the silver funnel it would spin around splash on the altar and when it did the crowd erupted kind of like when the red raiders score a touchdown i mean it is one of those spontaneous cheers that went up it was boisterous it was loud that was the feast of tabernacles every day they did that on the last day they did the same thing with two exceptions they still came carrying the pitchers through the water gate 
to the pool of Siloam, back up the water gate, quoted Isaiah 12, 3, sang the Hallel, cheered, waved the branches, came into the altar area, and two things were different on that last day. They marched around, now this is in Leviticus 23, by the way, they marched around that altar seven times. That was to remind them of the deliverance of God when they marched around the walls of Jericho seven times, remember? And the walls came tumbling down. So that was, that was the first change. The second change was when the priest came to pour the water into the silver funnel. On the last day, there was no water in the pitcher. It was a testimony to the incompleteness of the promises of God. God had promised them a Messiah. God had promised to heal their nation. God had promised to, to, to bring the, the Redeemer. That had not happened. And so when there was no water, instead of a massive roar, there was total silence. It was at that moment Jesus stood up. And in the midst of the silence, he said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. What an incredible time. There in the midst of the ceremony, he interrupted the ceremony. He interrupted what was going on. He wanted to turn the people away from the ceremony to himself, away from the shadow to the substance. He, he wanted to turn them to say, the Messiah has come. He is here. And his cry was, if you're thirsty, come and drink. Now it's kind of exciting because it was one of those times that you would never have expected. You would never have, have planned it this way. But it was a time when Jesus declared that he was the Messiah, that he had come. Now, two things I want you to see this morning. First of all, there is an unlimited uh, offer, an unlimited proposal. Uh, if anyone, now who does that include? Everyone. Anyone means anyone. Anyone, anywhere in the world, any time, any place, any circumstance, anyone who is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. You see, the gospel was never intended to be just for the Jews. It was never intended to be just for the Americans. It was intended to be for the world. Did, did you know that the word nations appears over 800 times in the Bible? That is more than grace, forgiveness, salvation, love combined. The nations. God always had it in his heart that the gospel would be something that would impact the entire world for good. Jesus came not to die for a few, but for anyone. It was a universal order. Anyone of any kind, any status, doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, whether you're young or old, doesn't matter whether you're male or female, whether you're this ethnic group or that, it doesn't matter. Anyone, anywhere. It's a universal proposal. And then he describes it. He says, if you're thirsty, come to be and drink. Now, let, let me stop long enough to describe thirst. We don't know much about thirst here. We got too many Big Macs and Wendy's and all those on you know, We get thirsty, we stop and get a, get a Diet Coke. I've been on a diet 63 years. But uh, <clears throat> nevertheless, I mean, we, we don't know much about thirst because it's so available. But water is absolute essential to life. Do you realize that? Uh, biologists tell us that our bodies are two-thirds water. 
Doctors will tell us that every good thing that happens in your body happens in water. And so thirst is absolutely critical. You can live a long time without food. Once had a staff member live 43 days without food. You can't live but a few days without water. I mean, it's absolutely essential. Now, here's the thing. The, the most violent, the most demanding craving of the human body is for water. Now, Jesus said, if you're thirsty. In other words, whatever it is that you need, he says, I can supply that need. Whatever it is you're craving for, whatever it is you hunger for, I can supply that need. Whoever, anyone, anywhere, whatever. Is it possible that Jesus could provide, uh, every one of us wants forgiveness could he provide forgiveness for us? Well, of course. 1 John 1, 9 says if we confess our sins, he's faithful just to forgive our sins. He, he, he can handle our need for forgiveness. What about our need for significance? Nobody wants to be nobody. Oh, and by the way, the great thing about Christian faith that you don't hear much about is everybody's somebody in Christian faith. They're not any nobodies. They're not any insignificant people. Everybody is somebody because you are loved by God, redeemed by Christ. Everyone is somebody, but we all want to be significant. None of us want to feel like we lived for no cause at all. We'd like to think somebody's going to remember sometime that the world somehow be a better place because we were here. We want some significance. Could he give us significance? Oh, absolutely. Revelation 1, he calls us a kingdom of priests. 1 Peter 1 of 1 Peter 2, he talks about we are a chosen people. We, we, are, we are set apart for his, his use. Uh, and we've been given the, the opportunity to carry his message around the world. We're somebody through Jesus Christ. Significance. What about pleasure? Oh, we live in a pleasure-crazed world, especially in a pleasure-crazed nation. I mean, we want to be entertained. I mean, we can't get enough of it iPhones, texting, YouTube, watching, uh, music, whatever. We, we, we want all but constant entertainment. You'd have a hard time filling up Jones Stadium for almost anything except football game. People want to be entertained. Uh, they, it's something exciting. I'm one of them. I'm hooked. I, I, I love to watch football. And, uh, you know, we, we, we want pleasure. That's something we crave for. Could God give us pleasure? You know, many people think God's the great killjoy. He's just up there looking for reason to zap us and make us unhappy. That's not it at all. Psalm 1611 says, In thy presence is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand are pleasures forever. Now, I could go on and on. Everything we need, everything we thirst for humanly Jesus says, I can, I can take care of that. I can solve that. And so there, there's an incredible, there's a, an unlimited offer that, uh, that we have. But there, along with this proposal, this, this, in, this uh, unlimited proposal that's for anyone, anywhere, anytime, there is a demand. You have to come and drink. That's what he says. You know, when I preach this sermon, I get thirsty. Let's have a drink. How was that? Uh, oh, you didn't taste it? Let's try it again. 
Was that any better? Oh, you know what? When you're thirsty, nobody can thirst, be thirst, have their thirst quenched for you. You have to do it yourself. That's the essence of the gospel. It's a great proposal. Anyone, anywhere, anytime. But you've got to come drink. And how do you do that? Well, he explains it. I love John. He's so simple. He says, come and drink. And then he said, the one who believes. The, you, you, you drink it by believing. You, you drink the water of eternal life by, by, by believing in Christ, having faith in Christ. And, and listen, nobody can drink that water for you. And nobody can keep you from drinking it. You have the capacity to respond to God. Nobody can do it for you, but you can, and nobody can stop you. We have to come and drink. It's a good time to remind us. You're not saved because you are a good person. You're not saved because you live in Lubbock or live in a Christian community. You're not saved because you're in church this morning. You're not saved because you listen to a sermon or sing a hymn. You're saved when you come to Jesus Christ and turn away from your sins, turn to him, and receive him as your personal Savior. That's when you get saved. So the demand of this, of this proposal is come and drink. And I just say, you know, you can do that right now. You don't have to wait till the invitation time. You don't have to wait till another day. Right now, you can just simply open your heart and say, Lord Jesus, I am thirsty to be forgiven. I'm thirsty to have health and wholeness. I'm thirsty for have peace and forgiveness. Lord, I want to be saved. No, you died for You can do that right now. You see, it's a transaction between you and God, and you have to do it if you're going to be saved. Nobody can do it for you. And nobody can keep you from doing it. It's an unlimited proposal. And then the second thing is there, it is an incredible promise. He says that the one who believes in me, as the scripture said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. And he said he's talking about the Holy Spirit. So let me describe here. Here's what happens. When you receive Jesus Christ, when you come to drink the water that he offers to you, the water of eternal life, you come by faith to receive Jesus Christ. He responds to you by planting his Holy Spirit in you. Now listen carefully. The Holy Spirit does not live in you for you to enjoy him. Now praise God, he's enjoyable. That's not why he's there. He is there to make out of you not just a consumer, but a distributor. He wants you not only to receive the message of the gospel. He wants you not only to receive the gift of salvation. He not only wants you to drink the water of eternity, of eternal life that he offers to you. He wants you to become a distributor because, you see, the greatest joy in life is not just when you get saved... It's when through your witness, somebody else gets saved. The real joy is becoming an effective distributor of the water. That's why we have this church. This church does not exist for our comfort. It doesn't exist for our ideas. Now, hey, listen, I'm, I'm older than most of you. I will be 83 years old on the 10th of October. I'm getting older and I'm working really hard not to get old. There is a difference. We're all going to get older, every one of you. We're going to get older. But you don't have to get old. 
when you get old, you begin, you get preoccupied with yourself. Oh, and it shows in our language, adults. I mean, you, you older folks, just, just, what do we talk about? Oh, you should have seen the doctor I saw last week. Oh, my scar is 16 inches long down this side. Oh, we talk about our aches and our pain. We're very self-centered. Now, hey, that's okay, because listen carefully. I can't imagine the world without me. And you can't imagine the world without you. So, hey, it's okay to be preoccupied with yourself. But you have to learn your limitations. You have to know what you can do and what you can't do. When I get to preaching, even though I'm at this advanced age, I feel like I'm 17 years old preaching youth revivals with Chuck Swindoll, my singer, down in Houston, Texas, uh, as a teenager. I still feel that way. When I get through, I'm afraid I'm going to trip and do a spread eagle in the altar. I have to know my limitations. I mean, I don't have any pain. I don't have any worry when I'm preaching. It's all good. Everything's great. I've been doing it now over 10,000 times in my lifetime, and it, it, it's a wonderful thing, and I, I can do that, but I also have to be real careful going down steps. You see, we have to know our limitations. Now, older people, listen to me. It's not about us. If we don't pass on what God gave us, there's a generation becoming behind us that will never know what we know. They will never know Christ the way we know him. Listen, we're only one generation away from extinction as believers. And so God's Holy Spirit came to live in us so that we could be a distributor of the water. Let me illustrate this way. Way up in the Andes Mountains, way up above the frost line, where the ice and snow never really melt. But if the sun is just right and the wind's got the right direction, occasionally you will see on the face of an ice-clad rock high up in the Andes Mountains a little gurgle of water, a little trickle of water. And it traces a hesitant course across the face of that ice-clad rock. It comes down to the bottom of that rock and still behind ice it drops down to the next rock and guess what there are other little gurgles of water that have made it that far and they flow together those little gurgles and bubbles of water and then before long they're little rivulets and before long they're little streams and before long the amazon river 3600 miles later flows into the Atlantic Ocean at a rate of 188,000 cubic feet per second. And the Atlantic Ocean is fresh water for 60 miles from the mouth of the river. That's why we're here. You may feel like, as I do often, I'm just a little gurgle of water behind that ice-clad rock. What can I do? I'm getting older can't do what I used to do. I understand my limitations. What can I do? By the way, kids, you're going to be this way soon. <laughs> don't, sit, don't sit there smiling at what I'm saying because sooner than you think, you're going to be thinking the same things. Uh, you know, we, how are we going to navigate these waters? We're, we're just, just one person. But we join a church like Southcrest and we uh, share fellowship. We grow and mature in our faith. Others come. 
other churches join. Southern Baptist Convention has nearly 50,000 churches now, in addition to wonderful Bible-believing churches that are not Southern Baptist. Isn't it nice to know we're, we're not by ourselves? It's a great group of people out there. And all together, we're no longer little isolated trickles of water. We now are a massive Amazon River flowing into a polluted culture. And God's intention is that we would make it pure everywhere we go. That's what God put us here to do. Now, let me, let me illustrate it just another way real quick. In, in Israel, there are two bodies of water uh, that, that are noted. There, there are a number of smaller bodies of water, but there's the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. I'm sure many of you have been. Everybody, ought to, every Christian ought to go. It's not a trip. It's a, it's a pilgrimage. It's an incredible thing. And uh, you have the Sea of Galilee up in the north there, uh, borders in Syria and Lebanon. And it's not big. It's only about 13 miles wide and seven miles across. So it's pretty small. I mean, we have, uh, we have lakes in Texas bigger than that. Uh, it's not, it's not a huge, but it's, it's a life-giving body of water. Israel, since 1948, when it became, became a, a nation, uh, it, it has blossomed like a rose and like, like a garden, uh, all the way down to the Negev in the south. And it's all because of water from the Sea of Galilee. They pump it all the way to the south, and everywhere it goes, it, it helps create orchards and, and, uh, and beautiful gardens. And, and all the way down, Israel is a beautiful, lush state today because of water from the Sea of Galilee. It, it is wonderful, life-giving water. It's not big and it's not deep. It's only about 148 feet deep. So it's not a deep body of water. It is below sea level. But out of the southeast end of the Sea of Galilee flows the Jordan River. Now, if you're on a crow's back, it's about 75 miles down to the Dead Sea. If you're in a canoe, it's 200 miles. But it comes down to the Dead Sea and the water from the Sea of Galilee flows into the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is dead. I don't know how to describe it. I mean, there, there's nothing lived. Maybe some little microscopic amoeba uh, there lived, but there's no life in the Dead Sea. It's so thick with mineral content that you could read the Lubbock newspaper and sit up in the Dead Sea and you wouldn't get the newspaper wet. You can't sink. I mean, it's so thick. Beautiful body of water. Clear. Just incredible body. But it's dead. Now, here's the kicker. Follow me quickly. Same waters in both of them. The same waters in the Sea of Galilee is in the Dead Sea. In the Sea of Galilee, it lives. In the Dead Sea, it dies. Why is that? Well, there's a reason. The Sea of Galilee is alive... Because out of the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee are three rivers flowing out of the mountains of Lebanon. And those rivers refresh the Sea of Galilee with water every year. And then out of the southeast end of the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River flows. So here's the picture. The Sea of Galilee receives water and gives water. It receives water and it gives water. And it lives. The Dead Sea receives water and receives water and receives water and never gives and it dies. Now, here's the punchline. 
you and I are going to either be a Sea of Galilee or a Dead Sea as we grow older. It's our choice. No one's going to make it for you. Now, the tendency of old age, and frankly of all ages, because, uh, you know, you don't have to teach a baby to say mine. Uh, he, he learns how to say that. So this, it's not unique to getting older. But the truth is, if we're going to live in life, if we're going to have the kind of life we long to have and that God wants us to have, we're going to have to learn to receive and to give. Receive and give. We receive the gospel, we give the gospel. We receive the blessings of God, we bestow those blessings. We receive and we give. And, and as we get older, sometimes we just receive. And you say, well, preacher, I, I, I'm, I can't do anything. Well, sure you can. I had meningitis about eight years ago, six days in ICU. A friend wrote me a note, and a strange note. He said, how can I do less for you than pray? I thought, hadn't thought about that. What he was saying was, the most important thing I can do for you is pray. And folks, listen, you never get too old to pray. Do you realize that senior adults in this church and in every church have been praying for a long time? And those are the ones you won't pray in for the pastor and for the staff, for the community, for the nation. They can still pray. They can't do a lot else. We can't run and jump like we used to. There are things that we can't do. We don't hear near as well, and we talk a little more than we should. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it kind of goes with getting older, I guess, but uh, there, we can still pray. What if? What if the senior adults, for instance, took it upon yourself that you were going to be ministers in a way that uh, would be unique to you? For instance, every junior high school and high school in Lubbock and, and, and every uh, uh, player on the teams at Texas Tech what if you had a way of finding out when their name's in the newspaper and they did something special, they were high point man or they scored a touchdown or they were a first seed in the band or whatever. If, if you had a way of getting their names and addresses and then you sat down and wrote them a note and said, we're so grateful for you and so proud of you and at Southcrest we love you and any way we could ever help you, just, just let us know and begin to talk about what they could get if they came here. What else are you doing? I mean, we've, we have the time. Uh, and that represents the church. The church needs to be realized that we are, we are uh, in our own strength, enabled to do certain things, but together we can do things that, that, that are absolutely incredible. We can become distributors of the water of Christ, and we can grow older being a Sea of Galilee and not being a Dead Sea. That's, that's the essence of what he's saying here. He didn't let us get saved just for our benefit. He had us get saved so we could live for the benefit of others. I, I said to the early service, I say to you, get over yourself. It's not about us. We, we have the experience and we have the opportunity to pass on the most incredible truth in the world. And we, as we get older, ought to be spending our time passing on what we've received to those around us. That's the ultimate message of this. Anyone thirsty, come to me and drink, Jesus said. Wonderful proposal. Very demanding. You have to do it yourself. Nobody can do it for you. Oh, but when you do it, Holy Spirit dwells in you, and he dwells in you so that you'll be filled and streams of living water will flow from you 
to those around you. That's the essence of the church. It's the essence of being saved. And that's the message of this dramatic moment in the Feast of Tabernacles on that last most important day. Now, we're going to have an invitation in a minute. My, my invitation is very simple. If you've never been saved, would you make your way to an aisle or be someone here that can tell you how to do that and rejoice with you in that? This, this church would just be, it'd go bananas if, you, if you'd commit your life to Christ today. That's the invitation. Maybe you need to unite with this church. What a great fellowship. Great, great fellowship together. Wonderful pastor and staff and people. God's led you to this place. Why not just come on and say, God's led me and I want to be a part of this church. There'd be somebody here you can just say, I want to join this church. Or maybe, maybe you've been saved a long time. But it's been a while since you really had a close relationship with the Lord. You see, we have to keep it polished every day. My wife and I celebrated our 62nd wedding anniversary yesterday. And uh, we've already swapped texts this morning. I'm learning to, be, to use emojis. <laughs> you know, the little pictures with the hearts and the smile and, you know, and the thumbs up and all this. Uh, that's new to me. It's, it's tough. I'm, I'm having a hard time with it. And uh, so I, uh, I, I texted her this morning. I said, I love you more today than I did 62 years ago. And on this first day of our 63rd year together, just want to tell you I love you again. Now listen, if you're going to have a marriage that lasts, you're going, you're going to have to keep it polished. Oh, and when I was preaching in the first service, this fell out of my Bible. And it's a card from my wife. With every anniversary, I fall in love with you all over again, and so on and so forth. And then, of course, what she wrote is even better. And, uh, you know, you have to do that. We regularly give each other cards for no good reason. Not a birthday, it's not Christmas or Easter or Fourth of July, just say, I love you. You see, if you're going to have a good marriage, you have to keep it polished. Now, don't, don't think I'm kidding you. Some of you, your marriage is not what it used to be and not what it ought to be, and it's because you're not paying attention to it. Same way is true in your relationship with Christ. Just because you got saved when you were 14 doesn't mean your, your heart is hot toward God now. We have to keep up that relationship with him. There needs to be times. We, we call it rededication sometimes or renewals or refreshing. But we all need times with the Lord when we just sort of love him fresh all over again and, and tell him again how much we love him and appreciate him and, and just enjoy uh, going to his word and reading. This is his love letter to all of us. If you want to know the Lord, get in his word. Uh, it, it takes time. And, and maybe you're someone, and, and you realize it's been a long time since I just consciously said, Lord, I really do love you, and I, I, I want to be closer to you. And just have a time of refreshing and renewal. That's what the invitation is for. It's not my invitation. It's not the invitation of the church. It's the Lord's invitation to you. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And the one who believes out of his innermost being will flow streams of living water. Pray with me. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services 
or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.